This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. It's season four of Office Hours, and we're studying the book of Hebrews. The theme, Jesus is really better. Hebrews was written in the mid-60s of the first century A.D. to a predominantly Jewish congregation that was being tempted to turn away from Christ back to the Old Covenant, back to types and shadows, and to a rabbinical understanding of the Old Testament. Joining us on Office Hours today to talk about Hebrews chapters 6 and 7 is Dr. Dennis Johnson, professor of practical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. Dennis is a longtime student of the book of Hebrews and an active pastor and author of commentaries on the books of Acts and the Revelation. These volumes and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Dennis, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you very much, Scott. We're in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, which says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Dennis, why does the pastor begin this section by appealing to God's oath in Genesis 22, verse 16? Well, I think we can see the answer to that as we look back to the verse just before it in chapter 6, verse 12, where he has urged his readers, his hearers, to imitate those who by faith and patience inherit the promises, to not be sluggish, to not turn back, but to hold fast to the promises of God. And Abraham is the classic one who received promises from God and responded to those promises with trust. Now, the point of the oath, as we'll see in this paragraph, is that really God gave Abraham and believers in his train, in his family, two reasons to trust in the promise of God. The first is simply the fact that God's word is absolutely reliable. But the second, this oath, God swearing by himself, is really God binding his word with his very life. That's an enormously important concept that isn't something that Christians may think about all the time. We think about God making promises, and we think about God giving commands, but we don't often think about him making promises or taking an oath against his own life. Put that in its original context. What does that mean? How should we think about that? And what's the significance of it? That is a great question. The background, the wording here in Hebrews is actually from Genesis 22. It's after Abraham has demonstrated the strength of his faith in God's promise by actually being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. But the background that Genesis 22 is looking back to is actually the covenant-making ceremony in Genesis 15, when God ordered Abraham to kill various animals, to split the carcasses in two, and then God, through that pillar of fire, as it were, the miniature pillar of fire, went through the animals, saying, if I fail to keep my promises to Abraham, may I be torn limb from limb as these animals have been. Unthinkable, of course, because God is immutable, eternal, cannot possibly die, but then God cannot possibly lie. And so God's made these two commitments, his word and his life, and he says, I stake my life on it. We often use the expression, or sometimes I hear it used, it is what it is. And there's a biblical analogy for that that's even truer, where God says in Exodus, I am what I am. So it's interesting to think and important to understand that the same God who says, I am what I am, I will be what I will be. God isn't becoming, he isn't developing, he isn't changing, he isn't growing, he just is. And the God who is has sworn this oath, and therefore the oath is completely reliable. Absolutely. 
which is really important for understanding Hebrews because it is, as Gerhardus Voss suggested, the epistle or the book of the diatheke. It's a book that's all about covenant. And here's where I want to go with this question. It has been suggested by some evangelicals very recently that, well, you know, covenant, yeah, it's in the Bible, but there really isn't any such thing really, as a covenant of grace. As we're working our way through the book of Hebrews, how does Hebrews help us understand or respond to that way of thinking or that line of argumentation? Hebrews views everything that God does in relation to his people in terms of covenant. And and right at the very heart of the book of Hebrews, that conversation will be later on in the season, I'm sure, on chapter 8. He quotes the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31, contrasts it to the old covenant made with Israel at Sinai, which Israel broke, promised the new covenant, identifies Jesus as the mediator and the guarantor of the new covenant, God's commitment to his people, and his expectation that his people will respond with commitment and devotion and loyalty and trust back to them is really the organizing structure of the letter to the Hebrews. And I would say the preacher to the Hebrews really suggests that's the way the whole Bible is structured. The idea or the theme or the doctrine, the teaching of the covenant, particularly the covenant of grace, is not esoteric to Hebrews. It's in some ways organizational. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. It it really structures the whole way of thinking about God's working out of his plan of redemption in history. He's writing to these people as if they are part of a covenant community. And it's in the sphere of the administration of the covenant of grace in which they are involved. That's the context to which he's writing and from which he's writing. And some are in danger of turning away from Christ, turning away from the covenant that God has made to them and for them and and with them. So how does this oath And you hinted at this earlier, but I want you to elaborate. How does this oath that he swears, which is invoked by the pastor to the Hebrews, how does that relate to the problem of apostasy? Well, it relates to the problem of apostasy, at least in part, because it says one who would turn away from this unchangeable, faithful, covenant-keeping God who issues his promise and then seals it with his own life has no excuse. The covenant Lord has never failed, will never fail to keep his commitments. The other thing it does, besides leaving us without excuse, if we're tempted to stray, if we're tempted to turn away and become discouraged because of adversity or whatever it might be, is that it really strengthens our faith by focusing our attention on God and on his faithfulness. And that, I think, is why the author to the Hebrews points it out so much here. He says, God wants to strengthen our faith, to establish us, to help us to embrace more fully the promises. And he's doing that by showing how utterly faithful God is, how utterly committed God is to bless his people as we rest and trust in his word. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. This self-maledictory oath that God took wasn't purely theoretical. It actually came to expression, fulfillment in time and in history, right? And so that adds even more gravity to this language. It does. It's ironic. You read Genesis 15, and when God in that pillar of fire passes between the parts, by that action, he's saying, may I be destroyed if I fail to keep my word. But when we see the fulfillment at Calvary, it's God being willing to be destroyed. God the Son coming to be willing to be destroyed 
in order to keep his word, because we, the covenant servants, have broken our side of the covenant, but he comes not only to fulfill the covenant positively from the Lord's side and our servant's responsibility, but then to bear the covenant curse that we deserve. And so God's put his life on the line to bless us in order to keep his promises. So this really is a covenant of grace because God is coming and freely, unconditionally accepting covenant breakers, not for the sake of anything that is in them, but purely for the sake of his unconditional favor. And he's provided the covenant keeper who kept the covenant of works, and that's Jesus, who is the temple, the lamb, the priest, all of those things. He's fulfilled all of the requirements. He fulfilled the promise that God made. He took on himself the curses of our covenant breaking, and we get the benefit of all of that simply by trusting in Christ. Exactly. We get the benefit of his covenant keeping because God credits us with Jesus' righteousness, and he's pleased with us because, well, in Jesus, not ourselves personally, but in Jesus, we have obeyed. We are counted as having obeyed. We also obviously get the benefit of his covenant curse-bearing because the penalty that we've brought upon ourselves Jesus has borne in our place. It's not as if, too, for believers, there are not obligations, what I like to call sometimes consequent obligations. Having entered into this visible covenant community, having received these benefits by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, there are consequent obligations. God doesn't accept us because we take up these obligations, but we take them up freely, voluntarily, because of what Christ has done. And nevertheless, these are serious obligations, and one of them is to remain faithful within the context of the administration of the covenant of grace, not in order to be accepted, but because we have been accepted. Exactly. I agree. Sometimes people struggle, though, with how to relate these two sides of the covenant of grace, the free acceptance with God and the consequent obligations that entail from that free acceptance. Sometimes we're tempted, for example, to turn those consequent obligations into the basis for our standing before God or into something else. Could that have anything to do, you think, with what's happening here in the context that's drawing people away from the covenant of grace? Actually, I'm not persuaded that they are tempted to take their obedience to that point of kind of self-reliance again or thinking that that's obligatory upon them. I think it's actually something much more fundamental for them. That is definitely a danger, but I'm not sure that these Hebrew Christians face that particular danger. It seems as if they are really the very core of their confidence that Jesus is better and the one and only way to the Father, superior to the system in which they'd grown up, that that very thing is being shaken and they're tempted to lapse back into visible forms of Judaism. And if they went back... Wouldn't that implicitly suggest that they needed to do something? Well, that's true. And that Jesus isn't really the sufficient, once-for-all, priest-temple offering. Very true, yes. Yeah, from that angle, yes, they're definitely tempted to go back into relying on some of their own efforts for their assurance. As a pastor, then, he comes to them in verse 15 and says, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now you see that, I think you would agree, the theme of trusting, waiting, things are difficult. But Abraham waited, and uh, and you're Abraham's children, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So as far as he's concerned, when God swore that oath, that settled everything. That's true. 
nothing else to seek. Verse 17, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So implicitly, they're wavering from that hope. We have this, and this is where I wanted to get with this question. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Just such an interesting expression that you're going to explain to us here in just a moment. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. We'll stop there. What is he talking about? Anger of the soul and hope that's gone into the inner place. The preacher to the Hebrews is so intriguing with some of the metaphors that he uses, because he uses anchor here. Back at the beginning of chapter two, he uses another nautical metaphor, although our versions don't always reflect it. When he talks about drifting away, it's actually an image for a boat getting loose from its moorings and kind of drifting away. And the anchor, obviously, is a symbol of something that makes things absolutely solid and secure, as it does for a boat where the anchor grips the seabed if it's in a a wharf or whatever. No matter what's happening on the surface of the sea, if the anchor holds, whatever the circumstances, in a sense, on the surface of life is, if the anchor holds, everything is secure. So he takes that metaphor, takes that picture where we think of an anchor going down deep into the sea, and then with just a twist, he shows us that actually our anchor is, in a sense, going straight up to heaven. It's going into the most holy place, the inner sanctuary of God, because Jesus is our anchor or has carried our anchor. He's the one who's gone ahead in any case. I think he's probably implying that Jesus is the anchor and the hope that he gives is the anchor. And he's there, of course, as the author will go on to say in the following chapters, always living, interceding for us at the right hand of God. He's looking ahead already to Psalm 110.4, that he's at the right hand of God. That's 110.1, but that he's also there as the priest in the order of Melchizedek, always living to pray for us. So there's the solid foundation. Now I put another image alongside the nautical there, but the solid foundation for our hope. The text seems to support your suggestion because the next clause, a hope that enters into the inner place, seems to be explanatory or, as scholars sometimes say, epexegetical of the previous clause. In the reference, there seems to be Jesus. And if that's so, when he says the inner place, what is the reference there? It's the heavenly equivalent of the Holy of Holies, the inner chamber of the tabernacle or the temple on earth. It's that place in the deep reaches of heaven where God the Father is enthroned and Jesus is seated at his right hand interceding for us. And he will unpack that in chapters 9 and 10 very explicitly, that Christ has entered there for us. What's so interesting here is that the writer to the Hebrews does almost the opposite of what we might have been tempted to do. He places the anchor someplace where we can't see it, where we would be tempted most likely to place the anchor someplace where you could see it and say, well, look, there it is. But he does the opposite. What's the effect of that? Actually, if you think about, I'm not a great sailor or seaman, but when an anchor is where you can see it, it's useless, frankly. I mean, and that's his point. And when it's in the boat, it's not securing the boat to anything solid. But when it becomes invisible, then it becomes something that you can rely upon that you're not going to get blown away in the storm. And his point, because these people are troubled, I think, by the fact that they can't see Jesus anymore because he's in heaven. And he says, no, that's exactly where you want him to be. That is a huge point, that the value, in a sense, 
of Jesus is that he can't be seen and that the anchor is where it needs to be to do what anchors do rather than relying on the stuff that can be seen which in this case most likely is the temple, the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, and all of the... Animal sacrifices that they're offering. So it's done once for all, and the confidence rests in that which is finished and that which is eternal, which has broken into history. Exactly, exactly. So verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So now he moves to the next phase of this part of his argument, having started with, as the heading says in the ESV, the certainty of God's promise. Now he moves to the particular uh, that we're going to get into in chapter 7. Forerunner, though. He's brilliant at using illustrations. So we just had uh, an illustration from seafaring and sea navigation. Now it really is, I believe, an illustration from the sports world from the ancient Greek sports world, the one who runs ahead. He'll pick up that kind of imagery at the beginning of chapter 12 when he talks about running the race set before us, that Jesus is at the finish line and so on. We're surrounded by this huge stadium of people who are from the Old Testament scriptures, Hebrews 11, bearing witness to God's faithfulness because their race is complete, so we're called to run. Jesus has run ahead of us, and that's what's so encouraging here that he has not just run ahead for himself, but the fact that he has entered that place, that inner place, by his faithfulness and his sacrifice and his eternal life is the foretaste and the guarantee that those who belong to Jesus and keep looking to him and trusting in him and looking ahead to him, as he says in chapter 12, will enter with him at the end. So it's a beautiful term that is expressive of hope and assurance at the same time. It ties together, then, these two ways of thinking about Jesus that we have before us in this section of Hebrews, something I wanted to say earlier and neglected. It's also the case that when God swears an oath and Jesus becomes our forerunner, we see that there are two parties in this swearing, in this oath-taking and oath-fulfilling. And so here we have a suggestion in Scripture that there was a covenant between the Father and the Son from all eternity— which was contracted, our theologians used to say, voluntarily by the Father and the Son. The Son came into history and and executed that for us on our behalf. And so the covenant of grace that we're talking about that God made with us that gives us such confidence is grounded not only in the divine will, but in a relationship between the Father and the Son. Exactly. And that's what he's going to go on to develop in chapter 7, because he begins to talk here about God's oath to Abraham and therefore to believers who are in Abraham, partly because he's already looking ahead. He's already quoted from uh, Psalm 110, but he's looking ahead to the fact that the Father has sworn an oath to the Son, making him priest forever. He's really going to camp on that in chapter 7, that not only does the Son hold his priesthood forever because he lives forever, but also because he's been established as priest by the Father's oath, a reference really that all goes all the way back to that pre creation, counsel, and commitment of the Father and the Son in the covenant of redemption. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals, since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced, historically, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Until now. R.C. Sproul. For Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically 
rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, For this Melchizedek, who's already been introduced, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. We'll stop there and we'll come back. So the pastor turns to Melchizedek in Genesis 14 to illustrate the superiority of Jesus' priesthood. Contrast for us the Aaronic and Levitical priesthoods with Melchizedek's priesthood. One of the main things that the author is going to do, the preacher is going to do in these next few verses is to say there's a different principle of appointment for the Melchizedek priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood, always the question was a question of genealogy. Who is descended from whom? Who will be the successor to the high priest when the high priest dies? And it always has that family line from Levi, then through Aaron within the tribe of the Levites, and from Aaron all the way through. Genealogy, you need to know who the next high priest is. Why, as the author is going to say? Because they're always prevented by death from continuing in office. You always need to know who the successor will be. The priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek, is introduced in the Bible, of course, in Genesis 14, when Abraham met him, returning from having victory over those kings. And then that other comment, of course, which is really at the heart of the author's interpretation of Genesis 14, is Psalm 110, verse 4. Melchizedek appears out of nowhere in the record of Genesis. There's no genealogy. There's no record of his birth or death. The author's going to go on and talk about that. I think not because he was, as some conscientious students of Scripture in the past have held, and no doubt some do still today, thinking that Melchizedek in Abraham's day was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. It doesn't seem to read that way. Among other things here, our preacher says he's made like the Son of God, and he also says that Jesus came in the order of Melchizedek. I suspect Melchizedek was a real contemporary, human contemporary of Abraham, who If we knew more about him, we would know that he had a father and a mother, and we would know that he had a birthday and that he had a death date. But the restraint of the Holy Spirit as he speaks through Moses, Scripture withholds all of that data from us and simply presents a worshiper of the true God, God Most High, whom Abraham recognizes as a legitimate priest standing between Abraham and God himself, the Lord, And yet we hear nothing about his being connected to the covenant family line that has been traced earlier in Genesis and will be traced from Abraham in the later generations. So that whole issue, there's no genealogy for Melchizedek, the preacher says, makes him a very fitting portrait preview in biblical interpretation. We'd say a type in anticipation of the fact that the Son of God, who really in his deity has no beginning or end, no father or mother from the standpoint of his deity and who holds his priesthood forever would come in the fullness of time in fulfillment of that pattern that had been given in the person of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. So he plays a literary function. Exactly. Yeah. 
as far as the narrative of the story, the flow of the narrative, Melchizedek isn't there, and then he is there, and then he isn't there which is one of the things to which the writer to the Hebrews is appealing. But there must have been something about Melchizedek, and we were talking about this before the interview, so we'll let the listener join this discussion. There must have been something about Melchizedek that Abraham saw that caused him to recognize Melchizedek for what he was, that set him apart from other royal figures or royal priestly figures even in the ancient Near Eastern world. I think there had to have been something. We don't know what. Abraham was growing up and living in a context of polytheism as a youth in Mesopotamia, came into context of polytheism in his sojourning in Canaan, even in this account of Melchizedek, refused to build a kind of an alliance with the king of Sodom, even after he'd rescued the king of Sodom. No transfer of funds back and forth there. But for Melchizedek, he acknowledges, in a sense, he brings the Lord's share of the plunder from this battle. He acknowledges that it's the Lord who won the battle, and he brings that to Melchizedek, who somehow must have been distinguished as one who stood out from the pagan polytheism around, though not connected directly to the covenant line of Abraham that God was now calling and instituting. He worshiped God Most High and apparently led others to worship since he was a priest and a king in Salem, which was an old name for Jerusalem. And as the writer points out, it also means then he's a king of peace and Melchizedek, a king of righteousness. So his name, his title, but particularly the fact that he is recognizable as a worshiper of the one true and living God in some way that obviously the text of Genesis doesn't tell us fully, but Abraham knew that he could bring the Lord's share to him. He's king of Salem, which is suggestive. To help the listener, Salem is at least possibly part of a larger word, some have suggested. And that what larger word might be? Jerusalem. How interesting is that? That might have been part of the suggestion. And so here you have Abraham bowing before the king of Jerusalem yes. and recognizing him for who he is and making an offering to him as as to God. And now we turn back to the congregation. And the two things that happened when Abraham and Melchizedek met. Let me add that other thing. Receiving a blessing from God Most High through Melchizedek. Melchizedek pronounces a blessing on Abraham, and our preacher says both of these things show that Melchizedek stands as a priestly mediator between Abraham and Abraham's God at this point. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. The writer to the Hebrews says in verse 7, 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, right, the patriarch of patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the great patriarchs, gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take the tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And so the king of Salem, Melchizedek, this royal priest king, mysterious figure, is greater than Abraham. And as you rightly say, blessed Abraham, and Abraham made an offering to him. So going back to the setting of the congregation that's being tempted to turn its back on Jesus, who is greater than Melchizedek, what is the connection here if Abraham recognized 
Melchizedek, is he not saying, should you not also recognize Jesus, who's greater than Melchizedek? He's saying that exactly. In fact, with that, uh, his argument that might at first sound really confusing to us, his argument that in a sense, Levi, who wouldn't be born for two more generations, Levi gave tithes to Melchizedek and therefore acknowledged that Melchizedek stood between Levi and the Lord as a priestly mediator. That principle of of covenant representation of father over later descendants, Abraham took this action and therefore Levi took this action and therefore, of course, Aaron and his sons took this action, acknowledging the superiority of Melchizedek as a mediator. And so in effect, the writer is saying, why would you move your trust back to a system where you have perhaps the descendants of Aaron as your priestly mediators when they themselves in the biblical text have acknowledged that there is one so far greater who can stand between them and the Lord. And that is previewed in Melchizedek, fulfilled in Jesus who comes in the order of Melchizedek. And so that's the perversity of going back to the types and the shadows, because Levi and Aaron and Moses, they all work for Jesus. And Levi's already in Abraham paid the tithe and implicitly then recognized Melchizedek, who is, after all, a type and shadow, who's greater than Abraham, but who works for Jesus. Exactly. He, too, is a servant of Jesus because he's the preview that leads us to see this greater priesthood that Jesus has now fulfilled and is now continuing to carry out. Dennis, let's close with a reflection on the pastoral and practical implications of what it means to look to Melchizedek as a type, Levi and Aaron as types of Jesus, and Jesus as superior to all those things and fulfillment of them and fulfillment of the oath that God made. As the Christian listening to this, perhaps in headphones, is meditating on these things, let's say they're getting ready for bed. What do you want them to take away from this as they lay themselves down to go to sleep tonight? I think the most important thing to carry away from this whole discussion of Melchizedek, Aaron, we know that from chapter 5, there have been similarities drawn between Jesus and Aaron's priesthood, in that Aaron knew weakness, also with sin, of course. Jesus experienced weakness and never succumbed to sin. So we have a sympathetic high priest, the writer had said earlier, one who knows the experience of testing and trial. Here now, he's adding another picture, and one that is in some ways superior to Aaron, another picture of the supremacy of our high priest. And of course, where he's going is that this high priest is always living always praying for us. It's part of that continuous theme that's woven throughout this epistle from the quotation in the first chapter from Psalm 102, that although the heaven and earth pass away, you remain the same. And he'll pick it up all the way in chapter 13. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That theme of that constancy. Here we have a high priest who never needs to be replaced, who never slumbers or sleeps to, quote, another psalm, who is always praying for us and and to know that security that we can rest in him. Whenever tempted to glance toward something visible, something tangible, something we can get our fingers around to reassure us that all things are well between us and God, no, you look to Jesus. You look to Jesus. He is the faithful high priest. He lives forever. He holds his priesthood by the power of an indestructible life, and he's praying for you. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. 
Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.